south of the Mason-Dixon. This is the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. Here is your host, Brian McClanahan. Welcome back to the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. This is your host, Brian McClanahan, and this is episode 240, covering the week of November 23rd through November 27th, 2020. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Like our Facebook page and subscribe to our YouTube page. You can find all those social media accounts at our webpage, abbevilleinstitute.org. That's A-B-B-E-V-I-L-L-E, institute.org. While you're there, give us an email address. We'll give you a free ebook, Exploring the Southern Tradition, written by 20 Southerners. You can also purchase that book if you would like it in a hard copy form at Amazon.com. And speaking of Amazon.com, if you click on that Amazon Smile button at the top of our page, you make Abbeville Institute your preferred charity at Amazon Smile. So every time you shop at Amazon, you throw a few pennies our way. So it's a great way to support the Institute painlessly and effortlessly by simply shopping at Amazon. You can also support the Institute by clicking on that support tab at abbevilleinstitute.org. You can donate monthly, annually, or a one-time gift. And of course, we exist on your generous contributions alone. So if you like what we do, if you like our podcast, if you like our conferences, if you like our website, if you like all the things we do, all the videos that we do, then consider a tax-deductible donation to the full extent of the law. That means that uh, you will get the tax break for it. And of course, we can continue to do all these wonderful things that we try to do to explore what is true and valuable in the Southern tradition. Also, download that that, uh, free, excuse me, mobile app Just click on your app store on your mobile device. Look for Abbeville Institute. You can download our mobile application. That means you can get this podcast on the go or our lectures on the go, which are now numbering over 200 lectures on the go. We have thousands of articles. It's a mobile link to the website. It's a great way to keep up with the Institute. Again, free of charge. Just about everything we do is free of charge. So when you support the Institute, you get this stuff back and we can continue to do more. And we've got a couple of big ideas for 2021. We've started our video project. We will have a video out next week featuring yours truly on the Gettysburg Address. We wanted to do it last week because that was the anniversary of it. We just missed the the deadline there and the editing process. So we've got that. We've got another big project for next year we're working on behind the scenes. In addition to the videos, we've also got uh, a an opportunity with these Zoom conferences to try to reach more people. Our first Zoom conference, which will be December 15th, uh, sold out in less than 24, just a shade over, I'm sorry, just a shade over 24 hours. It sold out. And so we are very happy about that. There will be a replay of that event, though, and that's going to be one of our new initiatives that we're going to have moving forward. And there'll be more details about that uh, in the coming weeks. But we've got a lot going on. We've had a really great year at the Institute in terms of uh, the content and material we've put out and the things we've been able to do. <clears throat> it hasn't been a good year in terms of monuments coming down, all these other things. That's been the horrible part of 2020. But I do think we're having more of an impact now. And I think this is uh, something that we're going to continue to see, that our reach is greater than what most people realize. And I think that's a wonderful thing. As we move forward, we're still going to try to do different things and try to expand our reach in different ways. So... We thank you for all that you've done to support the Institute throughout the years. Or if you're a new donor, we thank you for your new donation this particular year. All right. Well, let's talk about the material. In fact, this entire week is a New South week. Uh, We've got a holiday week now, Thanksgiving. Now, 
as I say that, we all know the first Thanksgiving in America was actually in Virginia in 1619, that the Thanksgiving that we all celebrate across America in the Pilgrims, that wasn't really the first Thanksgiving. In fact, that was two years after the first English Thanksgiving. We also know the first Thanksgiving in, in the Americas for Europeans was in Florida, long before even the one in Virginia. There was also one uh, in the Southwest as well. So we've got this whole idea of a Thanksgiving tied to the pilgrims is just completely false. And I think that's one of the main things we try to do at the Institute all the time is point out how important the Southern tradition is really is for American history. It is the basis. It is the pillars upon which American society is built. And what's interesting about that, you know, when you look at, for example, the 1619 Project, which has come under so much fire, in some ways they recognize this and they just hate it. But what Americans think about America and about the American tradition and American society and American life has been so much built by the Southern tradition. And this particular uh, set of articles we had this week Again, focusing on New South themes, a couple of them were cultural in that they focused on a couple of cultural icons that we have in America today. And then the others were focused on what the South still offers modern American society or what the Southern tradition says about modern American society. And I want to start with the Tuesday piece with Clyde Wilson because it's very short, but the... Subject of the of the piece is a new edition of one of the most important books produced in the last 30 years on the South, and it's the Kennedy Brothers, The South Was Right. Now, this particular book came out in 1991, so we're looking at nearly 30 years. It's hard to believe it's almost been uh, you know 30 years since 1990. And this book has in so many ways been one of the catalysts for the rejuvenation of the Southern tradition in America. And it doesn't mean this stuff wasn't there before. But when the Kennedy brothers wrote this book, and it sold well over 100,000 copies, which is phenomenal. I mean, look, most people don't realize most nonfiction books sell less than 5,000 copies. And that's even with a, a tremendous amount of marketing. They sell less than 5,000 copies. In fact, many nonfiction books, you're lucky to break 1,000 copies. It's just people don't buy nonfiction. They buy a lot of fiction. In fact, this is one of the jokes. There was a, a historian named Frederick Merck who wrote a number of important diplomatic history books in his time, as uh, in, his life, in his lifetime. And, I mean, these things were important books in that field. His wife wrote cookbooks and outsold him many, many, many times over. Here you have one of the most important historians of diplomatic history in the United States, and his wife is writing cookbooks and just blasting his sales numbers. That's how, I mean, where we are. Fiction, health, uh, you know, these type of things, cookbooks, those books sell a lot. Just go to your Walmart and look at the impact of the Pioneer Woman or Paula Dean. That, by the way, is the South, I mean, in so many ways. When you look at that, you know, Paula Deen uh, was one of the main figures in American cooking until, of course, many years ago, she said unspeakable words 
uh, and and uh, of course that you know blacklisted her for a while. I think she's making a comeback in some ways. But then you have the pioneer woman, who um, is out of Oklahoma uh, on a ranch in Oklahoma. I believe that's where she's from in Oklahoma, and uh, just tremendously popular uh, in terms of uh, American cooking. But it's very much Southern cooking in a lot of ways. I mean that's what she does is Southern cooking. So you've got these these books, and you have this South is Right, over 100,000 copies. That shows you how tremendously successful this book has been. And fortunately, Shotwell Publishing, <clears throat> which is a great publisher publishing Southern books, if you haven't purchased some of the books from Shotwell, you're missing out. Uh, it is a great resource and a great uh, publishing company for, uh, for the South. And they've acquired the rights to this book, and they're publishing it now. A new version, a new edition of it. The Kennedys have updated it, added to it. And now we've got this new edition of The South Was Right. I love this. And I love it because here we are 30 years later, and this book is still current. And I always tell a story. There's a colleague of mine, and uh, he, he talks about how uh, he has this book and um, how it's almost like a, you know, a way to show that you're in the that you're in the club. You either have that book because you hate it or because you agree with it. Most people, though, aren't going to have it if they hate it. So when you see that book, you're like, okay, this person, we're, we're, we're on the same wavelength here. We, we can talk about these particular things. And The South is Right is certainly that. Now, it's not the, personally, it wasn't the first book by the Kennedys that I bought. The first book I bought of theirs, and they've got a number of books, was Why Not Freedom? And uh, I thought that was a great book. And then I went back and bought the South was right, uh, and I remember when I when I bought that book, um, it was uh, just the the company that I was in was it was very funny uh, because they didn't they didn't like that. Uh, so it, it's it's a it's a tremendous book, and it's a book that really again helped define this Southern uh, traditional movement or the Southern tradition in the 21st century. And it's been instrumental for so many people in getting them in, interested in what the South has to offer and the Southern tradition has to offer. And the Kennedys, the, the great thing about the Kennedys, I mean, here are two guys that aren't professional historians. They're amateur historians, but they do such a good job and are able to convey a message and a history in a way that most academic historians cannot do. And this is something that Shelby Foote often remarked you know, about his writing. He said, look, if... Historians could learn how to write. People would read more history. And you could get a great title, uh, a hard-hitting, punchy book, and people are going to read it. And I think in so many ways, this is what we try to do at the Institute. We've got the academic side of it, which a, a lot of people don't see because that's confined to the academic circles. But then we have the popular side, which is what this podcast is and everything else we do. And it's a way to reach people. On the Southern tradition, it's what the website is. It's what our little six-minute videos are intended to do. It's it's what we're trying to do to reach more people, to get them interested in our vision or the Southern tradition in America. What does that offer? What does it offer American society? And the two pieces that I think are so important in that in this particular week, the first piece is Monday's piece by John Devaney on who owns America today. And the next is the Dabney speech that was delivered in the late 19th century, but it's the New South, and it's still one of the most important speeches ever delivered 
in, uh, in Southern history. It was delivered at Hampton Sydney College. Uh, and it talks about this coming change and where the Southern tradition fits within that in American society. And here he's, he's saying this in the 1880s. So, what, 130 plus years ago, he's saying this. And I like this because I think it sets up nicely what we do at the Abbeville Institute. This, the first piece by John Devaney was actually delivered at our last conference, which we will have the audio lectures up for that in short order. Delivered at our last conference on who owns America. And uh, I think that what Dr. Devaney is able to do in this particular piece is point out that the Jeffersonians, as he said, stood astride of history. They were, they were the abnormal part of American history in many ways. I mean, certainly they dominated American history for about 80 years. Some parts of Jeffersonianism still exist today in, in the American political fabric. Not on the left, it, or maybe in some ways on the left, they just don't realize it, but certainly on the right. When you look at the Occupy Wall Street people, they're misguided in what they're doing. Certainly they're right in being suspicious of big finance, but where they lose it is an advocacy of big government to regulate big finance. But there were many Southerners that fell into this exact same trap in this New South period after the war. In fact, you can point to people like Henry Dillamar Clayton or Arsene Pujo or Carter Glass or Henry Stegall or Oscar Underwood. Many of these individuals in this New South period were interested in trying to figure out how to divorce the big banks and the big business from big government. And the only thing they could come up with was to try to regulate them. So you see, after the war is over, I mean, this is what Dabney's talking about. He's talking about the social impact of the New South, which was going to be bigger than just abolition. I mean, that was going to change the South, but there was much more to it. It was finance capital that was going to be a problem. It was many of the isms we see today in American society that were going to be problems. Isms, ideology, ideologues. Ideologues were going to create havoc in American society because it doesn't really matter what reality says. An ideologue is going to be driven by what's between their ears. It doesn't really matter about tradition, community, society, these kind of things. No, what matters is power. And you're seeing this now with the lockdowns and other things. What, what, what most people don't realize with this, and I've mentioned it quite a bit on my own podcast, is that what you're seeing is a Yankee vision of liberty that's now completely engulfed America. That Yankee vision of liberty is freedom from. So when you talk about Franklin Roosevelt and the New Deal, one of the things he mentioned, you know, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. We wanted freedom from fear. Freedom from fear. And how are we going to do that? Well, you create a big government apparatus, big bureaucracy, and you and you create a system where people don't have to be afraid about being jobless or homeless or whatever the case may be. And in this particular case with COVID, and we can say that there's, there's a humane aspect to that, certainly. I mean, but when you look at COVID... People are worried about 
getting sick, and so wearing a mask. There was a video I saw just uh, uh, today, I think it was today, maybe it was yesterday, on, this is from Australia now, but certainly there was a teenage kid in a restaurant or something in Australia, and he's choked out, completely passed out and dropped on the ground and then picked up like a rag doll and essentially thrown outside because he wasn't wearing a mask. That's Yankeeism. That's Yankeeism at work. Because you see what they're doing there, it's freedom. There's a fear that this guy is going to spread COVID, even though the chances of that happening are pretty slim. But there's a fear he's going to spread COVID. And so they knock the guy out and then throw him out the door. He's a teenage kid. This is where we are in Yankee-dominated, not just America, but also the world. You think about the impact Yankeeism is having across the world when you have uh, George Floyd rallies in Britain or Australia. I mean, what is going on here? Well, it's because Yankeeism has taken over the world. And that's not a good thing. That's not a good thing. The Southern tradition always offered a counterweight to that. So when you look at how Jeffersonianism has influenced so much in American history, again, the Occupy Wall Street people were right in what they were saying, that there's a problem here. They were just wrong in the application of it. We don't need socialism. We don't need big government. We don't need the government taking over the complete financial sector. And I think what Southerners were doing in the late 19th and early 20th centuries was trying to figure out, again, how to, how to manage this Hamiltonian system, which had been given to them and which had produced the modern American industrial society, which many Southerners liked, right? I mean, you look at the growth of Southern industry. Southerners liked getting off the farm. Farming is a hard thing to do. But at the other, on the other hand, they were concerned about the, the ugly of that, of industrialization. What did that do to American society? What does that do to the American worker? What does that do to the American psyche. How do, how do Americans wrestle with these things? It's something that Jeffersonians were keenly aware of even in the 18th century, 19th century. There were a lot of Jeffersonians in urban areas, wage workers. And so they dealt with these things in a way that was different than, say, Jefferson the farmer in Virginia. I mean, if you weren't a farmer, the agrarian message didn't resonate. But if you were a Jeffersonian in an urban area, well, maybe it did. And it was always ways to figure out how to divorce government and finance. And so when John DeBandy talks about who owns America today, well, I mean, it's the same people. It's finance capital. Finance capital still owns America today. You look at what went on with the last election. You look at the influence of big money. Uh, you look at the influence of media, corporate media. All of that, those are the people that still own America today. It's still Hamilton. And he does say, though, and I, I think it's interesting what he says at the end of the piece, or I found it interesting. Uh, at the end of the piece, he has this to say. He says, On reflection, given the larger historical trends since the 1600s, it is surprising the Jeffersonians gained and maintained power in the United States for as long as they did, and that they were able to implement most of their program of limited government. Well, this is true. It was the, it was the uh, anomaly, not the permanent, of America. One might be tempted to discouragement, seeing in the Jeffersonian mo moment a lonely outlier, an aberration of liberty, states' rights, and local governance, brushed aside by the winds of war and the dominant global trend toward the consolidation of political and financial power. Yet another way to view the matter is to 
appreciate the ability of the Jeffersonians to buck the trend. For localists and regionalists everywhere, this should give some cause for hope. So when you look at this and you see it, right, the Jeffersonians to buck the trend. They were bucking the trend even in the late 18th, early 19th century. The world wasn't doing this, but the Jeffersonians were. And so to buck the trend, when you look at people resisting the lockdowns, resisting arbitrary power, going to the local. I've got a a friend I went to high school with who's making signs in his community saying, you know, every business matters. He's putting them up all over the place. This is how you buck the trend. This is how you get people to say, you know what? Yeah, we're not going to we're not going to agree to this. Doesn't mean that there aren't people that are concerned about the virus, the COVID virus and what that can do to you. We know that it can be dangerous. On the other hand, we also know that shutting everything down is dangerous for people's mental health and uh, financial health. And that the only thing you're going to get out of that is massive government intervention, which is not good for American society. So this is where I think that uh, the Southern tradition still has much to offer. It depends on individuals to manage things better. If you know that the virus can be a problem, for example, you take individual steps. One of the things that the Jeffersonians are often, you know, Jefferson's often accused of being as a universal Democrat. He wasn't. If you look at Virginia society in the time that Jefferson was alive, it was much less democratic than South Carolina. And uh, we have a piece on the website. I'd have to find the title of it again. But it's the concluding chapter of a wonderful book by Charles Sidnor, American Revolutionaries in the Making. And he makes the case that Virginia's less democratic society was much better for liberty than South Carolina's more democratic society. And I think if you look at what's happening across the United States, more democracy means more shutdowns. More democracy means less freedom. That's the the sad commentary on modern American society. So you've got these two very good pieces. The New South uh, speech by Dabney is just tremendous. You have to read it yourself. I can't do it justice in a 30-minute podcast. Now, I will say that I covered that particular speech in my own McClanahan Academy, where I have a Southern Cultural Intellectual History series, and I go over through that speech in one of those, uh, it's actually part three, uh, for that particular course. It's four parts. It's part three. And it's a, it's a great speech and one that everyone should read. So we've got it on the website now. Uh, and so I teach it there too. So it's, it's such a, a, great, a great speech. But I want to focus on these last couple of pieces, pieces, kind of a positive part of the Southern, the New South Southern tradition. One of those is music. And on Friday, we published a piece by Tom Daniel on how to listen to jazz. So you think about what the South offers modern American society. Well, I mean, one of the things we just mentioned in this podcast is culinary pursuits, cooking. Got a lot of people that love Southern food, love Southern cooking, love what the South offers when it comes to the palate. And that's a big part of it, but also music. There would be no American music without the South. And we had a whole conference on music. It was one of the best summer schools we've ever had on music several several years ago. And Tom Daniel gave a nice presentation there about this. And so he wrote this little piece on how to listen to jazz. Most people don't, I mean, they think jazz, ah, oh, that's kind of boring. 
what he does is in this piece is teach you how to listen for things in the jazz to make it much more enjoyable to do it. Now, my grandfather, uh, who was, I just loved jazz music and he loved uh, traditional jazz. He loved what's, you know, there's, in that traditional jazz, there's hot jazz and cool jazz. Um, and the hot jazz is the Dixieland jazz. He loved it. He loved Dixieland jazz. He liked to dance. In fact, when he was uh, close to 90, he was out buying shoes, and uh, the, the lady there at the shoe shop tried to get him to buy some rubber-soled shoes, and he said he can't, he's not going to buy those because they don't have leather soles. He can't dance in them. right? So <laughs> 90 years old still wants to go dancing. Uh, but I digress. It's, the Jazz music and Southern music in particular, the South in particular, is such an important part of the American cultural fabric because without it, you don't have the auditory part of the American experience, and that is the enjoyment of music. Uh, you think of you know, we're at Christmas time and people love Christmas tunes. Well, I mean, one of the, people don't realize you know how important. Uh, Southerners were in, in singing some of these songs. Uh, you know, Gene Autry, um, kind of a Western you know, sound to it. But, I mean, some of the more famous tunes, Gene Autry sang some. And, of course, you have Northerners involved in this, too. But just in terms of Christmas hymns and the way that uh, hymns are written or, you know, you look at uh, the Christian side of it and how important the South was in hymnals, uh, two very important Southerners, you know, Benjamin Franklin White, and singing Billy Walker for shape note singing, and of course also for the Protestant churches in America in all of these great hymns that were put to music. But jazz is certainly part of it. You know, you've got country, you've got blues, bluegrass, rock and roll, R&B. I mean, so many things come out of the South, and to have that part of the Southern tradition is just tremendous. It's It speaks volumes about a people that can produce that much good quality stuff. Southern literature, Southern music, Southern food. It says something about the people themselves. You have to have something real and organic to have a culture like that. And that's what the South offers. And then the last piece uh, that I want to talk about is this piece on the Washington Redskins, written by Casey Chalk. And Football was not invented in the South. It's just that Southerners are better at it than Northerners. I mean, you look at the South and dominating so much of professional athletics and college athletics. There hasn't been a non-Southern national champion in, in college football in years, right? So we just haven't had one. I mean, it's been Alabama, South Carolina. It's, it's been in those states. We just haven't had a, a non-Southern national champion in football. Uh, and so when you look at the dominance of the South and that, and then you look at professional baseball players and basketball players and, and how many people come out of the South, how the South influenced professional baseball. But in professional football, it's always been a Northern-dominated thing, or at least it was. And the 19... Turn the... Early, early 20th century, there really wasn't a football team, professional football team for the South except one, and it was the Washington Redskins. Now, the Redskins have since dropped the name of the team, and it's now the Washington football team, which is completely ridiculous. But the Washington Redskins, I will never call them anything but the Washington Redskins. I grew up 
in a family that was were huge Washington Redskins fans. And the Washington Redskins uh, were the Southern team. In fact, their fight song was written by, uh, I mean, the, the people that, uh, you know, own the program, the Marshalls, the Griffiths. The fight song, you know, Hail to the Redskins, it's written by uh, the wife of the team owner. And it's such a fun song. And in fact, the Redskins were one of the only teams still have a band playing at the stadium. They had a band like a college environment. And I remember going to games back in the 80s when it was still hard to get a ticket to go to a Redskins game. I had friends that had season tickets. And, uh, I mean, it was a college atmosphere at a professional football game. You, it, The stadium would actually shake. Um, the, the risers in the stands would shake. It was really a, a, an amazing environment to be in. That's the professional football environment I grew up in. It's very similar to what you find in, of course, college stadiums in the South where you have these kind of things going on, too, particularly rivalry games. You've got the Iron Bowl coming up this week. Um, you've got all these I mean, wonderful rivalry games across the South, and people just really you know, get into these things. But the Redskins, actually, in their theme song for a while, for a few years, the they changed part of the words to fight, instead of fight for old D.C., they changed it to fight for old Dixie. This was a team that was cognizant of their Southern support. This was before you had the Dallas Cowboys and the Atlanta Falcons. And now you've got teams, you've got the Carolina Panthers and the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, Miami Dolphins. You've got Jacksonville Jaguars, New Orleans Saints. You have all these Southern teams. The Redskins were it. And they would have groups of people come from Carolinas and Virginia and Tennessee and Alabama and Georgia to go and root for the Redskins. It was an amazing thing, and they were the South's professional football team. And they had all kinds of great, you know, Sonny Jurgensen was from you know, North Carolina uh, and just one of their best players ever. I mean, the guy was a virtuoso as a quarterback and throwing the football in an age when the forward pass was not something that people did. And so you, you love that part of it. And to see the Redskins go through what they're going through now, which is indicative of the South as a whole, when Northern Virginia is not even the South anymore. Uh, Virginia itself is becoming, except for you know, the, the dominant areas of Virginia, are completely not Southern. This is why they're taking down Confederate statues in Richmond. Uh, I mean, you have that. It's, it's a sad testimony to what's happening in America at large. But I love this piece by Casey Chalk because it gets into the southern, the southernness of the Washington Redskins. And again, there will never be, they, I don't care what they change their name to, for me, it will always be the Washington Redskins. It will never be anything but the Washington Redskins. And I think people need to just hang on to that. Still call them the Washington Redskins if you're a Redskins fan. Um, if you want to root for the, for the Washington team. But uh, that's kind of an unknown part of this aspect of professional football and how important that team was to the South for many, many years. If you're a professional football fan in the South, you rooted in the 1950s, 60s, early 60s. But certainly, I mean, the Redskins around, you know, the 40s, 50s, 60s, you rooted for the Washington Redskins if you were in the South. All right. Well, I hope that you have a very good uh, Thanksgiving and um, we will have a couple of more weeks of podcasts and articles in December. We will shut everything down after December 18th 
for a couple of weeks while we're getting ready for 2021. We, of course, have our conference on December 15th. If you've registered for that, if you if you paid for it, make sure you click on that Zoom link that we've sent to you if you paid for it to register for the conference so that you can get in and watch it. Not everyone has done that yet, so make sure you do that and you can access the conference. Um, and that way you can watch it live. And, of course, send your questions and do everything. If, you, if you've registered, send your questions. I've given you an email address for that in, in, a, in an email. Uh, make sure you're doing that so we can have a good Q&A. But until next time, good day. <laughs>